We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being produced. We respectfully acknowledge the unceded territory of the Wurundjeri people and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. Hello and welcome to Undercover Episode 4. My name's Ada Hall and I'm the producer of this episode. And my name's Bridget Murphy and I'll be presenting this episode alongside Ada. So today you'll be hearing from our wonderful reporters Mac, Maya, Rebecca and the lovely lady sitting next to me, Bridget. I also want to disclaim that there might be some topics discussed today that may trigger some listeners. So if there is anything that causes unease for you, please reach out to a friend or a professional. The bottled water industry in Australia is big business. It generates about $700 million annually and is forecast to grow over the next five years. But do you know where this water comes from? If the bottle is marketed as spring water, the chances are it is groundwater, water that has been mined from underground. This practice is the cause of controversy among many residents and communities in towns where the water is extracted and trucked away. Reporter Mac Hurd investigates some of the battles fought between these regional communities over the extraction of groundwater for bottled water. Hepburn Shire in central Victoria is famous for its pristine water and mineral springs. Not far from the region's most popular tourist destination, Dalesford, is a little town called Musk. And it's here that I meet with some locals from Protect Our Water, the Musk Water Group who are campaigning against groundwater being extracted in Musk and sold for bottled water. Kate McBride is one of those locals. It's totally just sucking the water out of the ground for uh, no other purpose than putting in plastic bottles and getting paid for it. Truckloads and truckloads and truckloads go out. Blackmount Springwater is a water supply company that has been extracting groundwater in Musk since 2007. They extract the water from an aquifer below their property, which is then taken out of Musk in B-double tankers to bottling plants across the state. The residents in Musk are worried about the potential environmental impact of the practice and don't want their town's water being taken away and eventually sold in plastic bottles by big multinational companies. Helen Hayes is another member of the group. We do know that the aquifer is dropping. We don't know by how much, but everybody in this area has had trouble at some point with their own depth of the bores being a problem. Peter Dalhouse is a hydrogeologist from Federation Uni and an expert in groundwater. I think communities should always be listened to. I really do. I think that communities are always first to notice things. So when there's something happening like groundwater is being extracted and the creek dries up, for example, communities are first to notice that. And Peter says that it's incredibly important to get groundwater management right. So if you lower the water table too far, you cut off the water to rivers and lakes and swamps and ecosystems and and so on. And this, this is where the problem lies. The biggest use of groundwater in Musk is irrigation. Farmers and locals rely on it for their crops and land. From a scientific point of view, the effect on the level of the water table is pretty much the same, regardless of whether the water is used for irrigation or trucked off to a bottling plant. 
the legislation regulating groundwater also doesn't make a distinction between how the groundwater is used. The Water Act doesn't actually discriminate between those, but people do. And this is where I think the issue comes about, because in one case, you're using groundwater to support a community that live there and work there. And in the other case, you know, you're supporting an individual to just tank the water out of the district and become quite wealthy. You know. This lack of distinction between the use of groundwater is one of the barriers stopping groups like Protect Our Water from challenging these sorts of operations on legal grounds. But that didn't stop residents in the small farming village of Stanley, a few hundred kilometres away from Musk, from trying. In 2013, I was the president of the Stanley Rural Community Inc. This is Ed Tyree. In 2013, he became aware of the sale of land in the town to Tim Carey, who was trading under the name of Stanley Pastoral. I inquired as to the circumstances of the deal liaised with council, and we of course found out that Stanley Pastoral was entitled to take 19 megalitres of water on an annual basis. Kerry is the owner of Blackmount Springwater, the same company operating in Musk. The Stanley residents decided to challenge the taking of the water by Kerry, based on the argument that it would deplete the local groundwater resource. They took the case to VCAT and lost. We were so convinced that we were legally right and we were very confident that even if we lost at VCAT that we would win in the Supreme Court. To the group's surprise, they lost the case. They appealed to the full bench of the Supreme Court, but the Court of Appeal upheld the decision of both VCAT and the original Supreme Court ruling. In the end, an obscure section of the Water Act was the group's undoing. The practical outcome was that the group actually never got to make their case. Daniel Robinson is the barrister who represented the Stanley residents in court. This previously unknown obscurity in the Water Act effectively provided a loophole that meant if you already held a water licence, you were exempt from the ordinary requirements of the Planning and Environment Act, which is what the Stanley residents were challenging carry on. Stanley's case relied heavily on evidence by their expert witness, Peter Dalhouse, that would support their argument that the extraction would affect the availability of water for agriculture in the surrounding area. The fight the whole way was just about the right to have his evidence taken into account in the first place, or even looked at, um, and then losing meant that it was never looked at. The outcome of the Stanley case highlighted a number of issues with both the Water Act and the Planning and Environment Act that critics say are in desperate need of reform. The law in Victoria needs to be changed if we are to be successful in providing an environmental protection from the taking of groundwater. Tim, thanks so much for speaking with me. Well, the legislation there is there and it's been working perfectly well for many years. Singling out bottled water uses is, in my mind, unnecessary. There's people out there with concerns, but we're very comfortable with what we do and we're very proud of our business. How do you respond to those concerns? We uh, use all our water right across the country in a very sustainable manner. And while it may be a more visible method of using the water, extracting it and putting it into a tanker, it is by far the smallest groundwater user in those areas. 
It's been four years since the Stanley residents lost their appeal in the Supreme Court, but their disappointment is still felt today. The tank is going past each day reminds you of the time, the effort, and quite frankly, the disappointment of the whole community that this goes on today. Australia is known as a country with one of the best healthcare systems in the world, but it's far from perfect. Rural and regional Australians seem to be left out with less access to care. Being far away from metro cities and the health services they have means travelling for care is commonplace. Rural and regional centres have been struggling for years in terms of medical accessibility. According to the Department of Health, there are five rural health regions in Victoria, with 70 rural and regional public health services and hospitals. There are also six bush nursing hospitals and 15 bush nursing centres. Reporter Bridget Murphy explores this issue, having conversations with medical professionals from various walks of life. It's commonly said that Australia has one of the best healthcare systems in the world, but is it leaving some Australians out? I've always felt comfortable in hospitals, mainly because when I walked through the doors of Deneliquin Hospital growing up, I was met with smiling faces and rambunctious hellos. A lot of these nurses and doctors had known me my entire life. Some of them were even there for my very first breath, but mainly they knew me as Shana's daughter. My name is Shana Hetherington. I'm a registered nurse that has been practicing for over 33 years. And you're my mum. Yes, and I'm your mother. (laughs) (laughs) My mum has worked in healthcare most of her life, having the unique perspective of working across all three sectors of rural, regional and metro healthcare in both Victoria and New South Wales. She's seen firsthand how things have changed over the years, and they've changed in more ways than one. Over that period of time, I saw things change in the way that you had your own local hospital um, and you sort of ran your own hospital to things being centralised. Smaller local hospitals, like Deneliquin Hospital, are vital for their communities, performing all kinds of care. Just everything. Everything? Everything. You know, emergency surgery, emergency department, you know, post-operative care, medical care... Aged care. The services needed in rural Australia are seemingly very similar to what is needed in metro Australia, but what is available is very different. It's hard to access a GP. Uh, sometimes they're waiting six weeks for an appointment, otherwise you'll have to go to the emergency department. Just access is really difficult because the health service and the infrastructure is just not there. The National Rural Health Alliance has worked for over 25 years to improve the health and well-being of over 7 million people in rural and remote Australia. Dr Gabriel O'Kane, the CEO of the Alliance, said they've noticed a change in services over the years and find that access is an issue for those in rural Australia. That the more remote you go, uh, the less likely you are to be able to get the sort of health services that you really need. For as long as I can remember, travelling to a larger town or a big city like Melbourne was commonplace when you needed specialist care. My grandparents often travelled to nearby Achuka or Bendigo, and I, an embarrassed, sad and in pain 11-year-old, remember travelling to Melbourne to see a specialist surgeon after breaking my thumb trying to impress my friends with my gymnastic skills. It's become almost standard practice and commonly accepted in regional and rural areas to travel for specialised care. 
When I spoke to Professor Ruth Stewart, the Commissioner for Rural Health, she also said it's become common practice for rural Australians to have to travel for healthcare. It is very common. Um, and that has increased markedly in the last 20 to 30 years. But what are the reactions of rural Australians when presented with the need to travel? Professor Stewart told me about her own experience practising rurally. A common story that rural docs tell each other is of learning a skill because a patient has said to them, well, if you're not going to do it, I, I'm not going to get it done. Dr Gabriel Locane lived rurally and experienced firsthand having to travel for her own health care. Sometimes it's more a case that they have to travel. I mean, an example for myself, I lived in a rural regional town, but I got um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And at the time, this is 20 years ago, but at the time I couldn't be treated because it was high turnover and it was a very acute situation. I couldn't get the chemotherapy I needed in that town. And that was quite a big regional town. So I did have to actually go to Sydney. Although rural areas feel system changes strongly, changes in the health system are also felt by metro communities. Dr Ben Webb has been working in healthcare in Metro Melbourne since 2009. When we spoke, he mentioned the centralisation of the hospital system and how it's impacted accessibility. Certainly in terms of the hospitals, um, you know, there is such a uh, centralisation of, of uh, hospital services um, and that's, that's been an issue. That's a, an issue. I couldn't help but wonder if the centralisation of services would affect the urgent treatment of rural Australians, and Dr Webb believes so. I mean, in particular, the, um, the urgent scenarios um, in particular, um, I think there's no doubt that if you have a heart attack in, in particularly remote or, or fairly rural areas, well, yeah, you're going to have a much worse outcome than if you're in Richmond and can be taken in five minutes to the Epworth and, and have emergency treatment, absolutely. The differences in healthcare from area to area are clear, but why is there such a difference? Dr O'Kane believes the system is structured more around metro areas rather than regional or rural areas. I think just the whole um, setup is geared towards metro. So most of our universities, most of our universities that, that run health professional courses are situated in cities. So that's your starting point. Healthcare professionals across Australia, such as the ones we've heard from today, Dr Webb, Dr O'Kane, Professor Stewart and my mum, have seen and experienced changes in Australia's health system over the last 20 to 30 years. What is clear, from my own experience and many of those who I've spoken to, is how special rural communities are, and how important it is to ensure that access to all kinds of healthcare is readily available and accessible to all Australians, whether they be in metro cities, in regional towns or rural and remote communities. Australia's federal election is happening on May 21st, and you may have noticed the rise of the so-called Teal independence this election. The two major parties have voiced concern about independent candidates stating that the more people in Parliament who don't align directly with Labor or Liberal Party lines will cause more harm than good. Reporter Mayor Van Ness finds out what drives a candidate to take on independent status and spoke with three women whose lives have been changed by the push for independence. On the 3rd of March, I attended a lecture called Is Political Journalism Failing Our Democracy? where Barry Cassidy and Patricia Cavallis both spoke. 
I missed the first half because my tram was delayed, but something Barry Cassidy said near the end of the hour was pertinent and it struck a chord. The election hadn't been called yet, but already we had been witnessing the rise of independent candidates putting their names forward. Cassidy was saying that these independent candidates are big players and have the potential to have the biggest impact on the two major parties. If not us, if not now, let's do this, Goldstein. Why would someone run as an independent candidate? In the case of many, it is because the community back them. Zoe Daniel was approached by the voices of Goldstein and has now become their independent candidate. So what leads a community to take action like this? So I think someone would run as an independent or someone would, a community would ask an independent to run because they would feel fed up with politics as is. So in a perfect world, technically, everyone would be an independent, going back to their community and talking to their community and actually making decisions while consulting the people that it's going to affect, not just people being put into different electorates as part of this party machine to then just vote along party lines. My name's Olivia Smith, and I'm the digital media manager for Zoe Daniels' independent campaign for Goldstein. Once polling closes on May 21st, RMIT graduate Olivia Smith will have seen firsthand the progression of Zoe's campaign from conception to election. How would you say the campaign's going so far? I think as good as it can be going. Like, I don't think I understood. One, like, how important this is, and, like, two, like, how much work goes into a campaign like this. So it's, I think it's going really well. She is going up against a Liberal incumbent in a safe blue seat. So from the get-go, we're starting from zero and they're starting from 100. So running as an independent, it's um, it's always going to be so hard and it's such a short runway before you can take off. But she's doing really well. And um, yeah, I think she's going to do it. Like, I just, I think she's going to do it. Hey, Mayor, it's Zoe Daniel speaking. Hi, Zoe. How are you? Good. I spoke with Zoe about what running as an independent means to her. It's about returning politics to a situation where it's driven from the grassroots. With over a thousand volunteers, Daniel said she felt her supporters kick into gear once the election was officially called. It's really exciting. I think there's a, a real appetite for politics done differently and there's a, a lot of people in the electorate who are supporting my campaign because they want to see a change to the way the major parties operate and they see that they can achieve that through an independent. Zoe's longtime friend, full-time supporter and sports journalist Angela Pippos has taken on the role of media advisor for the campaign. Hi, Maya. Hi, Ange. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Excellent. How would you describe the campaign so far? In a word, energising. It's just so good to be around people who all share the same values and the same positive outlook for Mm. our country. Um, So it's been reaffirming and I'm loving every minute of it. Even with everything that's happening, all the... um, The The dirty tactics. Yeah, the dirty tactics. (laughs) Well, sadly, that's politics and that's Mm. one of the reasons why... Zoe is running to change the culture of it um, 
and so many people in our community agree that politics should be done differently. The feeling is that much of the community of Goldstein and other electorates want change. And part of that change is driven by the need to equalise the number of men and women who sit at the top. They want a political leader who reflects the way our society looks. The most important thing is that our parliament should reflect our actual society. Mm. And at the moment, it doesn't. Within the two major parties, the Labor Party has introduced gender quotas. However, the Liberal Party have hesitated to take this step. Women comprise 51% of our population. We deserve to have our voices heard in Parliament. I think that what women bring is just something extra. So it's not to do with taking anything away, it's to do with adding something and just bringing a different perspective to the room and then being at the table to actually articulate the perspective of the female half of the community. And I, I think that particularly in a, a country where we know, for example, that workplace sexual harassment is entrenched, where we know that violence against women is endemic, that those voices of women really do need to be at the table and, and be heard. Notably, several of the independent candidates are women going up against men. I think there's a tendency by those who might be threatened by female candidates because they can see the potential power that mm. women can have, that they tend to try to cut women out if they can um, because they know that a lot of women will probably vote for other women <laughs> because they're, they're going to get better representation from those women. So, you know, it's a, I guess it's a, a change to the system that is potentially coming and in a system that's quite, um, I guess, entrenched in its own way or has been the way it is for a long time, that, that change can be threatening. With the election one week away from the day this podcast is published, the decision of Goldstein's representative is ultimately in the hands and pencils of voters. Homelessness is an international issue that can affect anyone at any time. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the Victorian government introduced a program that worked to reduce the amount of people sleeping on Melbourne streets. With the release of this year's budget, this trailblazing program may be coming to a premature end. Reporter Rebecca Chin unpacks the issue of homelessness in Melbourne and the future of the Homelessness to Home program. that we as a wealthy, reasonably wealthy country can ignore the plight of people who are displaced and homeless and fear for their lives in their own country. I will never forget the night I volunteered with the St Vincent Soup Van. I was in year 12 and after school a group of students and I worked with the soup van travelling to various spots around inner Melbourne to offer hot food, sandwiches and toiletries to people doing it tough. At one of our stops stood a female student in her school uniform. She was probably the same age as my classmates and I. She spoke to her mum about a sack she had at school that day while grabbing a bag of toiletries and a hot cup of soup. I was confronted with the harsh reality that although we were the same age, we were living vastly different lives. It was very surreal. Walking through the streets of Melbourne, it's common to come across people who are sleeping rough. According to the 2016 census, 116,000 Australians were estimated to be homeless. 
the same census reported that in Victoria, there were 15,890 people experiencing homelessness. These people come from all walks of life, having experienced harsh personal and structural difficulties that contribute to their experience with homelessness. Jenny Smith is the CEO of the Council to Homeless Persons and has dedicated 25 years working within the public sector. I spoke to her about homelessness in Victoria and what the Victorian government is doing to help. The Victorian government has been uh, you know, wonderful really through the pandemic and we've given hotel rooms to tens of thousands of people without a home to uh, allow them to isolate safely. And in doing so, they realised that Quite a proportion of those people are vulnerable and really must have a housing destination and the support they need to keep it. In February of 2021, the Victorian government introduced the Homeless to Home program, a housing first initiative to help those residing in emergency accommodation due to the pandemic. The program has provided medium to long-term housing as well as support packages to those experiencing homelessness, especially after being provided short-term accommodation in hotels and motels during Victoria's lockdown. However, in this year's budget, the state government has cut $43 million of their funding to a program that has halved the amount of people sleeping rough in Victoria. By our calculation, that's 78% of the budget that is needed to keep this program going gone. So at the level of support that is needed, that means 1,440 vulnerable people are going to miss out on that support. Uh, Or, you know, I anticipate we'll be asked to provide uh, support that is spread far too thinly across the larger group. Sleeping rough is the most extreme and literal form of homelessness. It includes living without access to conventional dwellings and can include sleeping in cars, tents or any type of impoverished shelter. Unemployment, lack of affordable housing, domestic violence and poor physical and mental health are just some of the contributing factors to the growing problem of homelessness in Victoria. With approximately 1,100 people sleeping rough every night in Victoria alone, homelessness can affect anyone at any time. You know, if I said to you, Rebecca, um, look, um, could you just walk out of your office now, hand your cards over, put $20 in your pocket, leave leave the rest and walk out in the street, hand your keys over, you can't go home, um, what are you going to do? With the spread of coronavirus and harsh lockdowns throughout the country in recent years, along with the perpetually rising cost of living, the amount of people sleeping rough has most likely grown. Victoria has multiple services to assist in the housing and care for people experiencing homelessness. However, according to the Victorian government's inquiry into homelessness, the demand for services exceeds the availability for support. Between 2018 and 2019, there was a 22% increase in the number of Victorians seeking assistance from homelessness services since 2012 and 2013. Between 2020 and 2021, almost 278,300 clients were assisted by specialist homeless services across Australia. The state government is still investing $75 million into the homeless sector, particularly tailored to prevention, sustainable housing and early intervention. Jenny Smith says this will help the sector, but more should have been done to keep the flagship program Homelessness to Home ongoing. I think it means that um, more people than uh, it should be will end up losing that housing and end up back at 
start at SKU and in our emergency departments of our hospitals and uh, taking up hospital beds and mental health beds and even prison beds when really if the support is there uh, to help them with the challenges that, that pop up in life they could keep that housing. You know, we as a sector find that it's so much easier to help people early on and pre- and help them prevent losing their housing than start dealing with the situation. I often still think about the student that night from the soup van. I wonder how her sack went and how she went sitting her exams. I wonder if she is at university, like me. I don't know her story, and I never will, but I do hope, much like other people experiencing homelessness in Victoria, she found the help that she needed. We'd like to give a special thanks to our amazing executive producers, Tito and Bernadette. I'd also like to thank the reporters of this episode, Mac, Rebecca, Maya and Bridget, for all of their hard work and for sharing these stories. Of course, a massive thanks to our wonderful producer, Ada. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to tune in next week for Undercover, Episode 5.